It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie morning the 1st of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Yesterday the doll was asked to approve legislation that would decriminalise the possession of cannabis for personal use. Seven grams of weed or two and a half grams of hash. There was broad support across the House for the People Before Profit Bill with just a couple of dissenting voices from some rural TDs. Sadly, I can't um, uh, support this uh, motion here t- today uh, because I-, I worry so much about the, the evidence of drugs and, and, and what it's doing to youngsters, lovely young boys and girls and the way families are broke up and, and people finish up in bad health. And we can see that it has been on the rise uh, for nearly two decades now and it's the stepping stone to have the drugs while they tell you the, the, some of the people in favour that that it's not a, it's not a serious or, or, or bad drug in itself but it's it's the gateway and the stepping stone to, to have the drugs and then I have had uh, the, the medical profession saying that there are more people affected uh, adversely by cannabis than any other drug because there's more of it being used and, and sure you deputy ring as as me and Kerry in Mayo and everywhere, it's on the rise in every little town and hamlet and parish, and and we see the devastation that it's uh, creating. I can't support this for that reason because uh, it's uh, I see uh, what's involved and know what it is with my, bringing up children and seeing my children bringing up children. What's involved and 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 what's uh, you know invested in their lives and trying to get them going, and I think that this is not right, and I I, I can't support uh, this motion uh, when something that will damage someone's health or lead them to have the drugs. Independent TD Danny Healy Ray speaking in the doll yesterday uh, to this People Before Profit bill uh, that was tabled by Gino Kenny, TD for Dublin Midwest, who joins us now. And a very good morning once again to you, Gino. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you felt uh, the comments that Danny Healy-Ray made yesterday were somewhat ironic, did you? Because Danny Healy-Ray is a publican. Exactly, Michael. 
you know. Um, now, obviously, Deputy Healy Ray's entitled to his opinion, and obviously, uh, he didn't support the bill, and that's his prerogative. But, you know, I disagree what he said in relation to his comments yesterday, and I think it's slightly ironic that Danny, like Deputy Healy Ray is a, is a publican. He has a pub. There's nothing against that, but, you know, people go to the pub to buy alcohol, and alcohol is a drug, the psychoactive drug that, you know, kills five people a day. So um, I just find it kind of difficult to kind of digest that, you know, cannabis is somehow much more harmful than alcohol, which is not. And it's uh, cannabis is not a gateway drug to harder substances. So, I mean, if, if there's any drug, I would suggest that's uh, a gateway drug. It's alcohol. I'll be honest with you. Hmm. That's, okay. Yeah. Uh, there seemed to be broad agreement across uh, the House, but maybe you'd explain what happened yesterday uh, because uh, your bill is being parked for nine months, isn't it? Yeah, so the government put a timed amendment on the bill for nine months. So it's kind of kind of kicking it down the kind of the road for a considerable amount of time. Now, in the meantime, a, a special Oireachtas committee will be convened in relation to the recommendations from the Citizens Assembly, and that will I, I presume that will probably happen after Easter, and there'll be kind of it'll be either for three or six months, and then obviously that uh, special committee then will look at the recommendations and then make recommendations to the government. But overall, Michael, I think I'm. I'm disappointed in relation to the government's response, but not surprised. It's evident that they do not want to go as far as legislative change around what the Citizens Assembly have recommended. Their form of decolonization is, you know, is the form that they have now and their version rather than amending the Misuse of Drugs Act, which we're we're advocating for. Mm. So that's what that's what it seems the road they want to go down, um, and obviously there's probably probably about over a year left of the lifetime of this government, mm. and I don't see them really taking this issue on in relation to amending the misuse of drug acts because to me that is a very important part of the recommendations mm. to. You know, enshrine their, their recommendations the uh, for the government to uh, adopt or reject. And uh, of course, the government ha- has to look at, at this pragmatically from a, a political point of view. And they have to yeah. represent the people who've elected them and they have to gauge what public opinion on this is. And yeah. uh, they'd be very conscious as well going into local and European elections that if uh, they went against the will of the people, that that could have serious consequences. Well, I think the will of the people, and if citizens, if the Citizens' Assembly reflects that, the people have moved on in relation to this issue, Michael, you know, and I think if you've done a straw poll uh, in kind of any street in Ireland, would they favour a model of, you know, stop criminalizing people for personal drug use i think the majority put would people would say yes mm. now how you kind of articulate how that looks what that looks like mm. um and in relation to cannabis use and cannabis availability i think the same kind of reflection would support you know a decriminalization model or even further you know i'm talking to people that yeah. never consume cannabis in their life but they say look if people want to use cannabis that's their business mm. you know but you know the, the business of you know, which is everybody's business, is 
people going through the criminal justice system and sometimes prison, that's a huge base of resources. So all them resources could be directed towards more progressive things in society. If people want to use, you know, cannabis in this instance, so be it. You know, okay. that's I don't have a problem with that. Maybe you could clear up uh, some confusion uh, following our program yesterday. I was speaking to a, a GP who specialises in addiction, as you know, a group of GPs wrote to mm. the government ministers, members of the Rockdus Health Committee and uh, spokespersons on health asking them to reject your bill. But he, he seemed to be of the opinion that, in effect, that you could possess se- up to seven grams of, of cannabis mm. legally uh, and that it couldn't be taken off you. Is that correct mm. if cannabis would remain illegal? Uh, I mean, yeah. could, could Gardaí not confiscate the cannabis off youngsters or whoever if they came across it? No, if our bill was legislated tomorrow, somebody could possess up to seven grams of cannabis without any legal sanction, and that, you know, substance not taken away from them. Not taken away. That's what. So no, 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 no. It wouldn't be taken away from them. So what's the point of that? So it's it's not a legalisation model, Michael. Mm. And I tell you the reason why. If it was a kind of a a bill that we put forward without legalisation, then you would have, obviously, the amendment of the Misuse of Drugs Act, plus you would have sale and supply. Mm. How how do people actually get the cannabis in the first place? Mm. So you would have that model, plus also home cultivation, and, you know, another model, which is very effective in Spain, about social clubs, cannabis Mm. social clubs. So you would have a model of sale and supply. Air bill doesn't stipulate that whatsoever. Air bill says, if somebody's found with, certain amount of uh, cannabis for personal use, which ref- reflects the Citizens' Assembly's mm. recommendations, that okay. that person would not go to criminal justice. You, 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 you could legally possess it. It, it can't yeah. be confiscated. Uh, and uh, you can consume it in public? Um, yeah, at, I think at your discretion. You know, right. you know, yeah, yeah, at your discretion. Outside, and that's fair. Enough, uh, outside you know. your house or outside your neighbor's house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and people do it already, Michael. It's not like, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, people, people do this already. Okay, and I must admit, I wondered where you got this number from or what it means. What is seven grams of cannabis? Uh, you said that that's a, 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 an amount that uh, people can legally possess in Luxembourg and Malta at the moment. Exactly, uh, yeah. Uh, well, how much does seven grams of cannabis cost? I'd say street value probably about 80 euros. 80 euros. Why, why, yeah, would, 80 why euros. would people want so much cannabis under possession? Well, you'd have to ask them. Okay. You know? Yeah, you'd have to ask them. But I mean, you know, so, would, would you smoke yeah, 80 yeah. euros worth of cannabis in a day or would that last uh, you a I week or a month? I say it'd be difficult month? to do that. I say it'd be difficult to do that. Right. You know? Okay, so why? I, I, it, seems, it sounds like an awful lot. Uh, I mean, how much, let's well, say, if you, if, you, if you were to, to compare it to a night in the pub, let's say you went to the to the pub for a good night with 30 or 40, yeah. 50 euro. Uh, I mean, how much would you need to spend on cannabis uh, if you were to compare them directly? I don't know, Michael. I'll be honest with you, I don't know. I mean, the reason why we, you know, stipulated seven grams is because in Luxembourg and Malta, they selected that that kind of quantity. And that's fair. I mean, look, I wouldn't get mm. kind of too obsessed by even cannabis itself or the amount. The main thing about Air Bill, Michael, was to stop people going, getting kind of arrested and charged in relation to small possession of, in this instance, cannabis. Now, people are charged. I mean... We've seen the courts in the last year, six and a half thousand people are brought before, you know, the criminal justice system for small amounts of 
a lot of drugs. And I think the majority of that would be probably cannabis. So I don't see the point in doing that. I really don't, you know. So if you wanted, I mean, if somebody is, if people want to go down the road of diversion in relation to if people, you know, they want to get counselling and so forth. But if people want to use cannabis, mm. that's their prerogative, yeah. you know. So I, that's, yeah. So look, but, let's, let's move talking, on from okay, all this. But if you're talking about young fellas, let's say in school, uh, or well, on, that's different. That's well, different. okay, but I mean, you have some eighteen-year-olds in school. Uh, if yeah, of course, yeah. If they were in school, or if they're standing on street corners, uh, as people will say, with eighty euros of cannabis, is that not eight ten-euro deals? Is this not legalizing well, small dealing? I mean, no, no, no. I mean, look at if obviously if if the, if, if a guard stops a person, they have, you know multiples of seven grams they could be done for sale and supply you know if if that's the discretion of the guard but look mm -hmm. at let's not get caught up in the amount right let's get let's get up let's get caught up in the kind of the re you know the reasoning behind air bill air bill is to stop people being brought before a judge right and brought and sometimes being charged in relation to that amount so let's let's move on to find kind of being crazy about cannabis, right? Mm. Cannabis has been around, and it's it, look at Michael. If it's whether it's legal or not, people will still use cannabis. Right? It's as simple as that, right? It's a, it's a reality. So let's let's kind of let's get up, you know. Let's let's get into the kind of let's embrace reality mm. and stop criminalizing people if they choose to use. Certain drug, right? That's and is it that it is. prevalent? Is, is it is it so prevalent? Is it so commonplace for young people, in particular, to be consuming cannabis that it's luck of the draw as to whether they're caught and if they get a criminal conviction? I don't know. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of young people, don't use cannabis. You know, um, some young people do, and it's and it can be problematic in relation to. You know, I, I acknowledge that there, there there is dependency issues, um, and obviously, young people smoking any sort of substance at a very young age is not good for their health whatsoever. I'm not endorsing that, um, but the reality is that cannabis is a reality, and people are using it. You know, and pe some people are using it. It's like alcohol. There is, you know, people. A lot of us, I mean, that drank alcohol before eighteen. You know, we all had that experience. Hmm. Um, so rather than kind of sidelining side these issues you know we need to talk about them and mm -hmm. to kind of say look at this is the reality of our society um and we need to kind of say what's a better system than you know directing people towards the criminal justice system i would suggest stop doing that and you know um you know if people want to use cannabis that's their business mm -hmm. but the bigger kind of pit, elephant in the room is that how actually they get cannabis. Now, air, air bill is a very moderate bill. I would go much further, um, and we need a kind of regulated system of cannabis. So if somebody wants to use cannabis, they can buy it in a dispensary, right? Or, you know, or they can grow a number of plants. Right. I just, mm. let, let's move on. And I think that's a better system. You, that's you want to be able system. to go down to the shop or the coffee shop or wherever it is. Exactly. Um, that if people choose so. Yourself, if you, right. And then, uh, Michael, I, I mentioned then, young then people you know a few times, just to uh, pick up on another point, because it's probably unfair uh, to just talk about young people. You you spoke about this being a problem over six decades, going back to the 1960s, mm. in other words. So I take it that there's people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, even in their 70s who are using cannabis. Exactly. Yeah, of course. You know, and, you know, 
people that would say contact me and they they would use cannabis you know for pain relief you know they use cannabis just everyday people you know and they they enjoy using cannabis don't use it probably on a regular basis but they do at the weekend and so forth so people you will use cannabis for all sorts of reasons and that's their business michael and if they want to do that the, what the what the what's the business of everybody is how you know resources are spent in relation to criminalizing people if, if they are using cannabis so them resources are better spent in a regulatory system right where mm. actually cannabis is completely legalized it's regulated it's a bit like alcohol and it's regulated and it's taken away from the black market because the black market essentially you know controls the cannabis industry to, to, to a certain degree so all them revenues then go towards kind of criminal gangs so why allow that to happen all i'm saying is that to, you know to stop that you now i'm not saying overnight the black market would all of a sudden recede not I'm not saying that, but largely where, you know, cannabis has been regulated, you have a better system of, you know, it's controlled then by the state because cannabis is still a controlled drug, Michael, and it's controlled not by the state. That's, this is the irony at the end. Mm. It's controlled by the black market. So why allow that to happen continuously? So that's all we're saying is that we have to have a different system of actually how we look at all drugs. Okay. And I think that's a better way of well, looking not, at Well, nothing's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, the no. recommendations of uh, the Citizens' Assembly will go to a special Oireachtas committee, I think. Yeah. So obviously that will run its course, and I presume it will be three to six months, and then they'll make its recommendations to the government. But, I mean, right. I, I just don't see the government doing anything radical in relation to you know, change, you know, amending the Misuse of Drugs Act. I think, I mean, I don't want to preempt anything, but kind of the feeling in relation to TDs that have been on the kind of, uh, like, have been kind of watching this issue carefully. I think the, the Oireachtas Committee will, you know, endorse, you know, the same, I suppose, recommendations that the Citizens Assembly have said, that we need to move, kind of move on in relation to criminalising people. And that's the overall sentiment, not only from the Oireachtas, hmm. but the general public. All right, Gino, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank you very Gino much. Kenny, People Before Profit TD for Dublin West. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Yeah, just a, a couple of comments about cannabis. Uh, one caller in touch saying it is safer than drink. 100% so says uh, this caller and it should be made legal. Another text from somebody who says why allow cannabis smoking when government money has been spent over so many years to convince people to stop smoking cigarettes. Thanks indeed uh, for that. I I don't think cannabis in itself is carcinogenic. Tobacco is a a different substance. Although you might be smoking the two, I don't think that cannabis, pure cannabis without tobacco, gives you cancer. Uh, I'll stand corrected if that's not correct. But thank you indeed. It's a a valid point. I'm sure that people uh, will understand now Yesterday in the Dáil, the issue of Ukrainians arriving into this country in the future being given an allowance of €38.80 was raised as an issue of concern, indeed, and as to how people could survive on that amount of money. This is after new legislation is signed into law and then enacted, and it will apply 
to new arrivals only. But then came this bombshell. The temporary uh, protection directive, it does expire in March 2025. And uh, I know that my colleague, uh, the Minister for Justice, uh, was at a a Home Affairs Council meeting in Brussels and the issue was discussed there. And uh, we will move forward on that in line uh, and in consultation with our EU partners. Can I just say to you, Deputy, what I did say was, I think it could well be the case that down the road we may have to make the decision that anybody in state provided a accommodation, regardless of what date they arrived, they will uh, receive a payment of 3880. That's the Minister for Social Protection, Heather Humphreys. Tom McEnany, founder of Effective Aid Ukraine, joins us once again. Tom, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. That was a, a bit of a bombshell. Don't think anybody had expected that if Ukrainians arrived here last week, last year or two years ago, that they could be facing into this cut in their payments. Were you expecting it? Absolutely not. I think this has taken everybody by surprise. I mean, Michael, the the reductions that you, the very draconian reductions that you alluded to at the beginning of this item, they still haven't been brought in. And yet the government seems to be tripping over itself to say we can make things even worse we can make we can find ways of making life even harder for Ukrainian women and children who desperately fleeing the war in their own country. And it beggars belief. It serves absolutely no function. At least, I mean, I believe that the reductions currently on the table uh, that you mentioned, a reduction to 38 euros uh, per week, which uh, the Ukrainian Civil Forum, which represents groups working with Ukrainians, have suggested that after public transportation costs, would give uh, uh, recipients about two euros per day to live on. Hmm. Um, So very, very, very small number. We haven't had that implemented yet, but at least the government is saying, well, the reason we're doing this is because we want to make it as unattractive as possible. The reason we're bringing in um, uh, rates of support, which are lower than most other European countries, is we want to make it as unattractive as possible for people to come to Ireland. Now, I believe that's cruel and inhumane, but at least it has some logic to it. It may not be a very kind or compassionate logic, but it has a logic. Turning around to people who are here, now we're not talking about people who are in work, obviously, because they're mm. they're in receipt of wages. There's 27,000 of the 100,000 Ukrainians in Ireland who are in employment. Of the 100,000, about half of those are children. So we're talking about a small number of very much of elderly Ukrainians or of women who can't work because they're minding young children. And we're saying to them, ah, wait a second, you've been living on 230 euros uh, and bringing up children on 230 euros a week. Now we're going to make that... Uh, uh, 39 euros a week and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no logic to this, Michael. It's not like those people are going to go home to, to go back to where they were being bombed. Yeah. They're not going to bring their... their sp- we're not talking about single people. We're not talking about men here. Those mothers are not having having left their homes, sometimes having left bombed homes, are not going to return to their frontline cities. Okay, but it would bring the payments in line with what other asylum-seeking people uh, would receive or uh, people uh, who are looking for international protection from the state. Absolutely, it would. And that would would be part of the government argument. And most people 
most civil society groups over the last 10 years have been arguing that those levels themselves are inhumane, that it's impossible to live on that kind of money, to live any kind of a of decent course, life yeah. on any mm-hmm. kind of money. But what the, we're, the we're, government we're argument is, but I'm sorry, Tom, the government argument, go ahead, go ahead, the, yeah. the government argument would be that you're not expecting people to live on 38.80 or two euro a day, as you say, because the state is also providing bed and board. Yes, but the state is providing bed and board. For, in terms of what's proposed for Ukrainians now, what they're saying is we'll provide bed and board in a dormitory-style accommodation. Now, if for, for, for some people, dormitory-style accommodation is okay. For others, obviously, it's, 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 it's a lot less than ideal. But what we're saying is you have 90 days on your two euros a day to go off and find yourself a job and to find yourself... Um, uh, accommodation in the private sector in Ireland and unlike people who are coming here unlike refugees who are coming here from other countries you're Ukrainian you're coming here under the temporary protection order so you don't get access to HAP you don't get access to rental assistance in the same way international protection applicants coming to Ireland do get access to HAP, which is about an 80% subsidy on the rent. Ukrainians, under the proposals being put forward by the government, would get zero access to HAP. And we're telling them, go into the private sector on your two euros per day and find accommodation um, uh, on your, whatever, your your, your 38 euros per Mm. week. Even though you're competing with Irish people, with with jobs, with nurses, with 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 guardy who can't get accommodation and don't need support, mm. even though you're competing with international protection applicants, and let's remember, Michael, there are six thousand international protection applicants in Ireland who've been granted their uh, permission to stay in Ireland, who should be moved on to private accommodation, but who are still in direct provision because they can't find private accommodation. Now, if 6,000 people with access to HAP, the 80% rent supplement, can't find private accommodation in Ireland, how, in the name of all that is reasonable in, in Ireland, are we expecting people without access to HAP, most of whom have young children in tow, to get private accommodation. I don't know, Tom. I don't know how anybody could answer that question. Uh, it is an impossible situation that proposal. people are going to be put into. Yesterday he- I spoke to the Minister that, for that's Justice. That's exactly what Heather Humphreys sure. is suggesting for people coming here, I know. but also for people who are already in accommodation. But the question, exactly I was going to ask, the question I was going to ask, Tom, is why? Yesterday I, I was speaking to the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, uh, and I put it to her that this was as a result of far-right nonsense gaining traction with people and that what is happening here is a political decision is being made ahead of the local and European elections. The Minister says that's not the case. What's your thoughts on that? Well, let's look at it. The government, over the space of a couple of weeks, has lurched to the right in terms of its treatment of Ukrainians. Let's leaving aside, let's leaving aside other, you, you, my, my expertise lies in, in relation to Ukrainians, has lurched universally to the right, has dramatically reduced the payment for people coming in now and is seeking to dramatically reduce the payment for people who are already here and has reduced the, the, the guarantee of accommodation to 90 days. It has done so 
with no policy undermining it and with no public debate and with zero consultation with uh, all of the bodies that represent you, you that 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 help or assist ukrainians in ireland it is it, it, you would want to be extraordinarily naive you would want to have very little sense of how politics works in ireland you would want to know absolutely nothing about the system in ireland to conclude that this is anything other than an attempt to garner votes and i believe it's going to backfire because i think that okay there is a vocal minority of people in ireland who are saying the meaner we can be to ukrainians to ukrainian women and children in ireland the better the less compassionate in our response to ukrainian women and children fleeing the war in ukraine the better there's a small minority but i believe and i've experienced that the vast majority of irish people want Ukrainian women and children to be treated with dignity are proud of the fact that Ireland uh, as a government and that the Irish people is known for its compassionate response. And I believe that the government's lurch to the right on this is going to backfire. Okay, time will tell, but we are where we are, as they say. Tom, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Tom McEnany is the founder of Effective Aid Ukraine. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Farmers are up in arms. Over red tape, bureaucracy and over-regulation, not just here, but there's been massive demonstrations across Europe and France, in Germany and indeed in Belgium. This evening, Irish farmers will be protesting in solidarity with uh, their European counterparts in every county of uh, the country. Let's hear what's happening locally. First of all, John Carroll, chairperson of the IFA in Loud. Good morning to you, John. Thanks indeed. Uh, for joining us. Uh, you're asking farmers to meet with you in Killineer this afternoon. Tell us more, if you would, please. Yes, Michael. Look, at Irish farmers have been watching what's going on across Europe over the last four or five weeks. And look at the bureaucracy, what's going on. And as, I, as Irish farmers say, enough is enough with the, with the red tape. So look, at, we're going out in solidarity with our French, German, and Danish farmers this evening at Kilinea. Um I would like as many farmers to, to, to turn up with a tractor um, and we will have a, a, a protest or a, or a rally at Kilinea this evening. Um, look, at we started all this yesterday evening at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock to try and put things together. So we're still putting uh, the final touches to, mm. to, a, to a plan. But look at every county in Ireland is going to do um, something this evening. Maybe some someone will do it a little bit later on, but that's that's what I think we'll do. Um, so we meet there and we'll make a plan from, from there on. Um, so that is what, mm. what we're going to do. Look at the amount of red tape and bureaucracy that's forcing um, us to do nonsensical um, stuff for the department, for the environment, and a lot of it is, um, it doesn't make sense. Um, so we want to try and, and voice our opinion across the community. Okay, so, uh, and you're asking people to meet at half four this afternoon at Killineer. Yes, look, mm. that's what that's what um, a couple of us have decided to what we do, right. and um, we will go go from there. Okay, because. Uh, 
if people can come along, you're asking them yes, half for. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Okay, yeah. stay, stay with me, John, will you? Uh, Dermot Ward is uh, the IFA chairman in County Meath, uh, and there'll be a, a demonstration, stroke protest in Meath this evening. Uh, good morning to you, Dermot. Thanks for joining us. You're asking people to meet at 7 o'clock, is it? Yes, indeed. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all your LMFM listeners. Yes, uh, we are going to have a similar uh, protest in solidarity with our French and German colleagues across Europe. We're going to have a, a gathering in the retail park on the Atboy Road um, in Avon, in that car park at 7 p.m. Uh, like we're inviting all farm organisations, contractors, producer groups, farmers, ru- and rural representatives. Like we'd also like to also invite, you know, our MEPs and our local TDs to come out and meet us because farmers are really frustrated, is the word that you with um, with EU regulations, and really this has turned out to be really a spontaneous um, protest uh, following on from what's happening in Europe. Okay, so like John, uh, people uh, in Mead, uh, as John says in Loud, people in Mead haven't had the time to prepare for this, uh, as you say, spontaneous, uh, which is why you're here this morning asking people to come out uh, at 7 o'clock this evening. This is on the Atboy Road in Navan, beside the Apple Green. Uh, And then you're going to go out on on to uh, the motorway, is it? No, well, uh, in introduction, we have been in contact with the Garda superintendent, and um, we just have a have a short uh, drive uh, with our tractors around the roundabout um, on the Atboy Road up to the M3 motorway roundabout and back down again. And it'll be, you know, it'll be a respectful and polite uh, demonstration. And um, look, uh, we would ask farmers who are bringing their tractors to bring tractors only, no other equipment, either on the front or the back of them. Just tractors only, please. And um, it'll be marshaled by our IFA personnel and uh, by Gardaí. And we'd ask everyone taking part as well to be polite uh, and respectful to the Gardaí because we certainly uh, we, 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 don't, we don't want any current like the hmm. in, in Europe. Of course. Uh, and uh, I'm sure there'll be some disruption for people who are not taking part in, in uh, the protest. Uh, between, what, seven and nine this evening, would you say? Yes, indeed. Yes, yeah. indeed. And but our aim is not to cause any any disruption, whatever. We just want to highlight the issues. Um, it's really a spontaneous reaction uh, by farmers themselves, and um, we will marshal it um, both by IFA personnel and uh, look at from it'll be probably from seven o'clock. Um, move off at 7.30 and disperse then at 8.30. Very good. All right. And, and, and Michael, uh, you and your colleagues from LFM, LMFM are very are very uh, welcome to attend as well. Thank you very much. Uh, John, I, I, I take it uh, it'll be the same in Kilinir. Uh You'll do what you can to prevent disruption, but uh, undoubtedly there'll be some disruption to traffic uh, between half four and half six, let's say. Yes, well, I suppose it will be a little bit. Look, we, we, we don't intend to, to um, interrupt anybody, mm. but I decided, and a couple of colleagues in, in County Loud, to go with a little bit of daylight so let the people see that this is where, this is our, our plight, this is what's happened to us, and to, to, to engage with people and, and let them know this is what we're doing on, on a little bit of daylight on the bridges around Drogheda. 
So um, look, that's that's basically what what our plans are mm. at the moment. Okay, um, and that's so on the R one three two. Yeah, that's that. We're, we're going to we're going to meet up on the on the way on the, from the Pope's monument on your way into Drogheda we'll park in there safely on the left hand side down around McGovern's garage and we'll assemble there and we'll make a plan to so many go here so many go there and go from there that's, okay. that's just our plan so h- half four near the Papal Cross today in County Louth seven o'clock on the Atboy Road in Navan beside the Apple Green uh, for listeners in County Me. thanks to both of you uh, for uh, joining us uh, this morning to um, make that invitation to local farmers uh, to come out if they wish to uh, this afternoon and this evening across Louth and Meath. John Carroll is uh, the chairperson of Louth IFA. We were also speaking to Dermot Ward, chairperson of the IFA in County Meath. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. How much is it to go to the doctor these days? I, I don't think you could see a doctor anymore for €40, Euro, could you? Uh, I don't know if anybody listening uh, uh, would be able to tell us that their GP only charges €40. Euro. I think you'd be doing well if you could see your doctor for €50. Euro. I don't think it would be unusual to pay €60 Euro or, or more. Uh, there's a, a significant question, though, for thousands of people across the country when they go to their doctor and they pay. And the question is, did they need to pay? Because they could very well be entitled to a GP visit card. Now, that means that you don't pay when you go to see your doctor. Let's speak to Dr. Alona Duffy, who's a GP based in Monaghan. Uh, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. There's a, a bizarre situation at the moment. 430,000 people in this country are entitled to a GP visit card, but just 16,842 out of the 430,000 people actually have one. Can you explain why that is? Well, what we're finding here in the surgery is when patients present, many of them are presuming that the card is automatically going to be assigned to them. And that's particularly the case for those with children up to the age of eight. They just presume that card will be given to them. And the reality is that if you have a child who's under six and they then uh, turn six, the card will be automatically extended. But if you have a seven-year-old child, you must reapply again. So I think that's part Mm -hmm. one. Part two is that many patients are reporting that they've tried the application process, that they're finding it cumbersome, it's difficult, and that ultimately they're coming out of it without it completed when they're trying to do it online. So I think it has been made difficult, and it's always been difficult, to be honest. And again, the process tends to be slow. There seems to be you know, weeks going by with people waiting to see, will they get the card, will they mm. not, then trying to contact the HSE to see what's happening and be told perhaps that not everything's arrived to go with the application. Right. It's not a case of people haven't been sick, so they haven't needed one. I mean, anybody with children will tell you that they're back and forth from the doctors. But I suppose children between the age of six and eight probably aren't there as as often. But we even find this with uh, with newborn babies, with mums and dads who have newborn babies, and we advise them that look apply for the card immediately because people may not be aware there can be delays in different parts of the country before that new baby gets their PPS number. Mm. It can actually take up to a couple of months. But if they apply within the first couple of weeks of birth of the baby using the mum's card or the mum's PPS number, they'll actually be issued with an emergency card. But even with us advising them of that, people. 
often don't. And it's only, as you say, when they go to visit the doctor, they realise, gosh, I could have had this for free mm. if I'd applied for the card. And they try applying. And many of them actually try applying. They've told us they try applying in the waiting or waiting to see it, thinking that it'll be processed that fast, and it isn't. Do you find that people think that they're not entitled to a card when they are entitled to a card? And I'm just wondering if you come across working people uh, and if you ask them, uh, do you have a, a, a GP visit card, they say, no, well, I'm working. I wouldn't be entitled to that. That is a problem, Michael, and many people aren't aware of what the, the cut-off requirements for the guard to income are. And I think the HSC needs to do a body of work on this, mm. highlighting that you can earn up to X amount and also that other costs such as mortgage repayments and other things like loans may be taken from that total yeah. to bring you in within the threshold of accessing a doctor visit card. And look, at you mm. know, we uh, don't say, and with and it, we're other, encouraging people. Sorry. Sorry, sorry to cut across you. On the other hand, savings uh, may prevent you uh, because it's means-tested, isn't it? Uh, And the income thresholds are relatively high, higher, I think, than maybe people would realise. €418 for a single person. Uh, If you're earning below that, you're entitled to a free GP visit card, which means you don't have to pay to see your doctor. Uh, And that increases then to €607 for a married or a cohabiting couple with dependent children. Exactly. I suppose the the limits are much higher for the doctor visit card than they are for the full card. But our experience also talking to patients is that many of them have tried applying for a medical card before, have been told they're so far off the threshold that they kind of figured that they have no hope and don't bother doing it again. So again, it's back to the process. We've got to make it very simple and the HSC have got to highlight that it is worth trying, especially if you're amongst the group. So families with young children, that they're really the group that the HSC are hoping are going to come with and the chance of getting one of these cards. Okay, uh, do we really want all 430,000 people? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss People who are entitled to a card to get a a card because I think one of uh, the concerns that GPs have is that that will lead to extra pressure uh, on your workload. Uh, People end up going to see the doctor as soon as they get a, a sniffle because it doesn't cost them. 
Well, I think it's trying to it's trying to marry both issues. Number one, we don't want a situation. There's no GP who wants to feel that a patient isn't coming to them because they can't afford to come to them. But yet, you're right. The reality of it is that we learned from the under sixes cards when all children under the age of six were provided with a free doctor visit card that visitation rates hugely rose, and that impacted massively not only on daytime services but also in the out of hours services, which meant it then became more difficult for people with perhaps more serious problems to attend. Because I do feel that sometimes when it's free, people don't think twice and they may not self-manage their illness at home. They come in with children and themselves, perhaps with the temperature of one day, rather than waiting and seeing how it's going to pan out. Will it improve? Is it a self-limiting viral illness? So again, a body of work needs to be done on that. Otherwise, people won't be able to access their GP. But at the same stage, look, we want to we want to see those who do need the card get the card. Okay, and of course, there's no such thing as a free lunch. People will go to see their doctor and they don't don't have to pay for it but it has to be paid for uh, and it's the government who pay GPs uh, under contracts. Are, are you paid for people who don't have a GP card if they are entitled to one? Um, no, we're basically, when you sign up we're paid what's called a capitation so we get an annual fee and that covers all visits, all attendances, all phone calls to us. So basically, if you attend 10 times in a year, we get the same amount as if you attend one time or zero times. But the reality of it is we know that the data shows that those who have medical cards and doctor visit cards will attend at least double that of a private patient. And I think that's no surprise. And so, you know, we definitely are going to see our workload increase as these medical cards increase. That's to be expected. And again, we're going to face the problems and the challenges of people not being able to see their GP when they want to see a GP. And furthermore, increasing problems where GP practices continue to close to new patients. And we know that, Michael, over Mm. 10% of the population have no GP and they have no hope of Mm. signing on with a Mm. GP. So we have got to continue to look at that. Can I ask you, Dr. Duffy, about uh, the patients who have a medical card or a GP visit card? Are are they healthier? Are they in better health than people who don't because they go to the doctor more often? Or is it that they go to the doctor as soon as they get a sniffle? Well, not everybody does. And I have to say, most patients use, use the medical card judiciously. We also know that those who've had the full medical card and have the full medical card tend to be those with more medical needs. So they may be those who are kind of in the lower SE groups. They may be those with more medical problems. So therefore, they have greater medical need as well. And mm. um, so, uh, you know, are they healthier? I think absolutely in some ways it can be easier for us as a GP if we have a patient who isn't going to have to pay and we need to bring them back. We know there isn't going to be a cost to them. We know that we're able to bring them back. They're covered for many other services for free, like let's say adults getting 24-hour blood pressure monitors, having an ECG done, whereas the private patient is going to have to pay out of pocket for all those extra services. So yes, it provides more holistic care to those patients. The good news is that um, look, we are looking and moving more towards chronic disease management and the hope is that time, as time goes on, that will increasingly become available for those with chronic diseases to those who don't have a medical card, unfortunately. At the moment, many of the services are limited to those with a medical card or a doctor visit card. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. Dr. Alona Duffy is a GP based in Monaghan. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, today. A lot of people in touch. Great to be getting so many comments. Farmers, it's Agenda 30. No farmers, no food. Don't trust the IFA, says somebody for some reason. Uh, I think there's a bit of a conspiracy theory tied into that comment. Thanks, though, for sharing your thoughts with us. Tom in touch with us saying, why? Why are Irish farmers so weak and timid? They said, we don't want to cause any disruption. 
what's the point? The government laughs at them. Well, I think they're coming out in big numbers, Tom, to make their feelings known. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that the farmers would argue the point. And I think that we've seen some disruptive protests over the years, which have been the subject of much criticism. Tom Navin then says, Michael, let's call a spade a spade. The government wants the refugees to go home without coming out and actually saying it. The government knows that it got it wrong. Uh, Tom feels that we took in too many for the size of the country. Such a shame that it wasn't done properly from day one. Uh, somebody else in touch with us saying, you keep calling your listeners far right. Why don't you do a poll and see, are we far right or are we concerned parents? I never called my listeners far right. I just happened to mention, maybe more than once, probably many times that there's a few far-right nutters who send in messages to the programme trying to get people to believe their lies. Uh, And, of course, there's a lot of people uh, who end up scared out of their wits because of these people. Uh, And we're just asking them not to be listening to these far-right nutters. They're the people who are concerned because of this information that's been spread. I mean, imagine the idea that any young man who comes into the country is a rapist. That seems to be what... Uh, these nutters are saying that's how mad it is every single young man is a rapist I mean cop on to yourselves Uh, I was asking about the price of a a doctor quite a few people text it thanks uh, for telling me Uh, somebody uh, says uh, 60 euro this is uh, Jackie uh, says 60 euro to see her doctor Um, we've somebody in Bedford in Navin uh, it's Angela I think who says 65 euro that's if you can get an appointment Uh, another caller uh, says the vet is cheaper this is John Conlon he says the animals can't tell them where the pain is uh, and they have to find out what the problem is Uh, thanks uh, John for that Uh, John Conlon is in Bally McKenney somebody else says it's 60 euro in my doctor but you can never get an appointment when you're have to wait for a cancellation or if not have to wait for a week it's so bad not enough GPs in the towns in this country thank you uh, for your WhatsApp message as well Uh, another uh, message about that are doctors allowed to charge medical card holders for routine blood tests uh, I don't know offhand. Uh, we'll have to look into uh, that uh, as to whether blood t- tests are covered by the medical cards. Uh, I haven't got a clue, to be honest. Uh, we'll have to look into that for you. Uh, somebody else uh, then says, Hi, Michael. It's €60 Euro to see the doctor and 20 extra for a referral letter. 35 for bloods with the nurse. At the moment, my doctor... Uh, couldn't see me over Christmas or the New Year and said go to the dock and call. I work hard, long shifts, uh, don't be running to the doctor uh, maybe twice a year. It's a joke what's going on, says our caller. That's uh, Mary. Thank you indeed uh, for your message to the programme today. 041983 our telephone number, text or WhatsApp 086 658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. This Saturday would mark two years without a fully functioning devolved government in Northern Ireland. That's two years without locally elected ministers able to take important decisions on Northern Ireland schools, hospitals and the broader economy. And above all, Mr Speaker, it's two years that Northern Ireland has been held back from achieving the massive potential of this unique part of the United Kingdom. (coughs) It was nearly two years ago that the then First Minister resigned over the old Northern Ireland Protocol. The government recognised that the protocol did not deliver to the people of Northern Ireland the same freedoms that leaving the European Union delivered for the rest of the United Kingdom. As part of 
as the party of the United Kingdom, as the party of the Union. This Conservative government has sought to address these concerns by replacing the protocol with the Windsor framework. I maintain that the Windsor framework was and is a good deal for Northern Ireland that addresses the, the issues around the old protocol and sets out a new way forward. But it alone did not prove sufficient to allow the devolved institutions to function with the cross-community support that is such an essential bedrock of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. No, but the Northern Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris speaking in the House of Commons yesterday there went on to say that all of that has changed because a deal has been struck with the DUP and that will allow for the restoration of the political institutions in Northern Ireland. It is only right that I acknowledge that for many in the, in the community an important part of this will will be seeing Michelle O'Neill take her place as First Minister. Following the democratic mandate she won in, at the May 2022 Assembly election. Let's speak to former DUP MLA Jim Wells. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Democracy is at work. Michelle O'Neill has a democratic mandate and will become Northern Ireland's First Minister. Great news, isn't it? I'm glad you called it Northern Ireland because in your voice picture you called it called them the Northern Secretary and you know how offensive that is to unionists that phrase. Yes, I mean we're in a situation where Michelle O'Neill has achieved a mandate to become the first minister for Northern Ireland. And I think it's only when she takes up office that people will be shocked and horrified to see that. Something of course that you and the Irish Republic will never have, or Finnegan and Finnefoy have come together in a coalition to stop Mary Lou becoming your First Minister stroke Taoiseach. So it's dramatic times. Um, there's been a series of events this week which are almost exhausting to take license off. But certainly, whether you like it or not, what has happened this last three days is significant. Right. Uh, is it a win for unionism? No, it's not a win for unionism, but it's a win, I believe, for the DUP. I think the DUP have relentlessly sold this deal and have convinced a lot of unionists to come on board. Yet, remember, we still remain within the European single market. There are still customs posts on, on, on the uh, coastal towns of Northern Ireland to check goods coming in from the rest of the United Kingdom. There's still paperwork, and crucially, we're still part of the European single market and subject to the European Court of Justice. Whilst there have been some practical changes on the ground to make trading easier, the constitutional uh, issues are still very much with us and prevalent. All right. Maybe we can hear what uh, DUP MP Sammy Wilson had to say about that. The fact remains that in Northern Ireland there are still EU manned border posts being built which will create a border within our own country. And when the Northern Ireland Assembly sits, ministers and assembly members will be expected by law to adhere to and implement laws which are made in Brussels, which said no say over and no ability to amend and no ability to stop. Did the DUP sell out unionists? I think the DUP negotiation uh, latched on to the small number of concessions that made have oversold them. And now we have to sit and wait to see the outcome of what's going to happen. 
give a very practical example at the moment. Amalgam fillings for your teeth seems a very small issue. The EU has decided to ban them because they contain mercury, as things stand at the moment. If you're in Northern Ireland, you can't have those fillings because we're within the EU single market. But in England, Scotland and Wales, there's no problems. That's the nitty-gritty day-to-day issue, mm. which has gone to unravel over many years. And that will indicate is that, yes, the DUP have made some problems, but there's going to be these issues that are going to come up back time and time again to bite us. And that's a practical example. So has uh, Northern Ireland left the United Kingdom? Northern Ireland stood constitutionally within the United Kingdom, the Article 6, which is a fundamental the part of the Act of Union, which says that trading must be an identical basis between all parts of the UK. That has been set aside. And I've asked this to, asked you many, many times, Mike, would Donegal accept a situation where there are trading posts, there are customs, say, at Lifford, or customs at Ballyshan? They wouldn't, because they would see that as a fundamental constitutional reduction of their position within the Irish Republic. And still, whilst all this is going on, millions of pounds are being spent to create customs posts in Warren Point, Belfast and Larne. So whilst some goods will now move more smoothly, the reality is there still will be red lanes and there still will be a different set of rules in Northern Ireland to the rest of the United Kingdom. And you, as not one of Ireland's highest-paid journalists, will realise what an important constitutional point that is. Mm, I got a pay rise, by the way. <laughs> well, I thoroughly deserve it. I hope it's anything less than 200,000 euros a year, Mike. There's, yeah. there's something terribly wrong. All right, let's get back to business. Uh, perhaps we can listen to the point you were just making uh, and how it was raised in the House of Commons yesterday by Carla Lockhart. Our leader said that there remains work to do. Therefore, can the Secretary of State confirm if Northern Ireland still remains under the EU single market laws for the production of food and agri-food? And does the EU customs code still apply in Northern Ireland? Does he accept that such a situation is not compatible with UK sovereignty and Northern Ireland's full place as part of the United Kingdom? And therefore, accepting that, uh, would he say that more work needs done on this? And can he further outline what assurances he has from the EU that the rules governing the new internal market system are acceptable to them. State. Can I thank the Honourable Lady for a question and can I recommend she re-reads the Windsor Framework and indeed the command paper? All right, maybe I I better reword Chris Heaton-Harris's title. Jim Wells, uh, how do you interpret what the Northern Ireland Secretary said there? Uh, is, Is there any change or is Carla Lockhart correct to be concerned that Northern Ireland is not a full member of the United Kingdom. I think Carla Rockard has hit it on the head. And when it comes to the manufacture of products, particularly food products in Northern Ireland, we are bound by EU regulations rather than UK regulations. And often they're more difficult and more complex. And these are regulations which, of course, we've had no say in because we're no longer part of the European Parliament. So therefore, that is another difficulty that Northern Ireland manufacturers have to deal with. Now, if they're intending to export into the European Union, that's not a problem. But the vast majority of the product that comes out of Northern Ireland goes to the rest of the United Kingdom, to GB. Mm. And that's where the extra expense occurs. So 
like the, the semantics around the ages that have been changes, the reality is constitutionally not one iota has changed. Yeah. We are still part of the single market and still controlled to EU reg- under EU regulations. Okay. Some will be unhappy about that, like yourself. Others will say it gives Northern Ireland the best of both worlds. Uh, and others will say, well, why not go the whole hog and let's have a border poll? I think that's uh, what Sinn Féin is saying at the moment. And that you've put the nail on the head. If we gradually assimilate towards European legislation and, and procedures, bringing us into line with the Irish Republic, there would be those who would argue, why not, as you say, go the whole hog and become a member, uh, and become part of United Ireland, which of course is an anathema to unionists. And that's why we use the phrase here, the boiling frog syndrome. That is why we're in the pot if we're boiling. We need to realise that we need to turn that heat off pretty quickly. Uh, and, and so the reality is that whilst progress has been made, there's so much more to go in terms of stopping this assimilation with the Irish Republic because we're not Ireland's last acre. We don't want to join the Irish Republic. We're happy to remain within the UK and we shouldn't be facilitating anything that leads to that happening. Mm. Gavin Robinson seemed very pleased with the deal. And when we did so, we did it on the basis of what we know to be contained within the command paper published today. Though we were told that the Windsor framework could not be reopened, we have succeeded. Though we were told that there'd be no change in the Green Lane, the Green Lane is gone. Where we were told there would be no removal of barriers on trade between GB and Northern Ireland, we have removed all checks within the UK internal market system, save for those ordinarily required for criminality and the prevention of smuggling. And we were told that there would be no legal change to the Windsor framework or the EU text. And yet as part of the process of trust and commitment as we proceed, colleagues will have noticed just yesterday the publication of over 60 pages of legislative change to text on a European perspective that will allow rest of the world products and the benefits of UK-wide trade deals to truly be available on a UK-wide basis. Jim Wells, Gavin Robinson really talking up the deal. They're good, very good, hard sell uh, for people listening to him. Do you think there'll be much dissent? Well, first of all, except there has been an awful lot of hard sell. I think at the moment... People are saying, oh, this sounds wonderful. But I think as this unravels and people start to examine the text carefully and realise that constitutionally we are exactly where we started, still remaining within the European Union, still subject to the European Court of Justice decisions and still subject to European directives, that they will realise that it's not all that it seems. Uh, and despite the, the, both the Secretary of State the DUP, and of course a whole raft of other political parties acting as cheerleaders, people will stop and think, hold on here a minute, is this all all that it seems? And I believe they will realise that there are still huge problems as a result of the protocol and the Windsor Framework. Jim Wells, good to talk to you as always, and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, former DUP MLA, Jim Wells. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. Airgrid is coming. Airgrid is coming with uh, their bulldozers, court orders and indeed 
the full force of the law. And our landowner engagement team have been looking to meet and engage with landowners uh, on that basis since the beginning of November. That's continuing at the moment and we're due to draw that to a close at the end of, uh, end of February. Um, we had outlined as part of that then there's, a, there's an early signing bonus, a maximum of 3,000, a minimum of, of 6,000, a minimum of 3,000 that people call avail of and that's coming to an end on the 9th of February. Now, as you heard, uh, it's uh, decision time for landowners in County Meath and Airgrid is in the process of trying to convince landers to sign up voluntarily to having pylons on their land before the 9th of February. Our landowner team are going effectively door to door, engaging with people. There's been a lot of positive interaction. A lot of people are happy to see that they're actually engaging and they're being offered compensation. There's a number of people who are saying, no, I don't want to engage. And we've noted that and we've moved on. We're in the process of actually going to a lot of landowners now who have actually called us back. Uh, we sent an updated letter last week to try and clarify the dates, to outline the next steps of the process beyond the voluntary process, and to try and correct some of the narrative that was out there about the project and about the next steps and about statutory powers and all of that. So that landed last week and we've had a, a big uptake Uh, phone calls from landowners looking for us to actually go out and engage and our team are quite busy actually this week meeting meeting landowners have have many signed up at this stage the early we're not going to to close until we conclude the process and to be fair to everyone who's involved in that we're not going to give an update in terms of the numbers but we're quite happy with the level of engagement that's there uh, from from, uh, many of the landowners but I will note that that doesn't mean that every landowner is accepting the offer that's actually on the table. And if you are one of the landowners, here's the crunch. It's a take it or leave it offer. Uh, we had to clarify as part of that that this is the first and final offer. Uh, there isn't another offer coming because that was one of some of the narratives out there. All right, that's Michael McMahon of Airgrid. He was uh, responding to questions from Sinn Féin's Darren O'Rourke at uh, the Oroctus uh, Committee on uh, the Environment. Uh, Darren O'Rourke is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. What did you make of what Airgrid had to tell you? It's uh, hugely frustrating, but um, not entirely surprising. I think it, it was, was indicated from before Christmas the the type of approach that, that Airgrid were going to take here um, were, were some way down that path um but it's not at all clear where where that path is going to take us um i think you know it is it is frustrating i think it's it's clear now uh, based on the the documentation that landowners have received and the the contribution there to from mr mcmahon uh, at the eroctus uh, committee earlier this week that uh, uh, the approach that that airgrid are taking um they've they've outlined in in detail um, the, the window is closing in terms of the, those early signing bonuses. The, uh, the window is closing in relation to the, um, the letters of offer. Um, as you said, it is a take it or leave it. It's essentially an, an ultimatum. Um, and they outlined uh, what the alternative uh, delivery mechanism from their perspective will mm-hmm. be, which will be um, to go to ESB, uh, to uh, instruct ESB to... Um, to pursue uh, way leave orders, um, ESB networks go to the CRU at that, sta- at that stage, and 
it's for the CRU, the, the energy regulator, to, to decide their approach, and they may or may not include a, a, a public consultation in relation to it. But what it is clearly doing, in my opinion, is setting up for uh, confrontation. Okay. Um, and uh, um, I think it's, you know, it was in, indicative. Um, you know, we don't know the, the detail. We don't know exactly, you know, mm. other than, 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 than anecdotal. Well, um, we heard quite a few have signed up, quite a few haven't. I think that's paraphrasing what Mr. Uh, Matten had to say to you. Um, but uh, what's your advice to landowners now? Should they take or leave this the first and final offer that AirGrid is making? Well, uh, and my my position hasn't changed in in relation to this, uh, and, and similar, I think, to um, NEPP and and others um, who have been campaigning on this for a long time. It's for for individual landowners to make their own decision in relation to it, and, and that is, is is fair enough, and I think understandable. But what I would say is, if uh, landowners are ambitious for this project to be delivered uh, underground their best hope is to stay united in relation to it. Um, and uh, that that's as much as I, uh, as I can say. Um, I think the strength of the campaign across the number of counties has been in the unity of the, of the campaign. Um, I think, uh, as I have said before, um, if this project... Why not take the money? I mean, it was made clear they're coming, uh, whether you like it or not, uh, whether you take the money or not, they're coming with their bulldozers, and if you object, they have a court order. Well, and and there's... Uh, there's potentially significant time to play out in relation to that. We don't know if there'll be a further public inquiry instructed by the CRU. Um, we also don't know, you know, the the, the level of of uh, sign up that is going to be there. And I think it was instructive uh, further on later in the exchange uh, between myself and and Airgrid. Um, they did indicate that ESB Networks um, will be responsible for 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 building this project. Mm. Um, they have ma- uh, materials construction orders in place, but they won't move until they have 70% of uh, land access secured. And, you know, mm. in fairness, that's land access secured, either voluntary or, yeah. or, or non-voluntary. But okay, you I think we can actually it's... hear what Michael Matten had to say in respect of that now. Uh, separate to that, ESB concluded the construction contract framework and put that in place at the end of last year. So they have a number of contracted parties, I don't have the details at hand, that are ready to mobilise to construction of the project. In terms of materials, they had construction orders already in place and they can give the green light at a point. Um, From engagements with ESB previously, they indicated that they want to get to around 70% land access secured through a voluntary or non-voluntary process before you actually mobilise to actually start construction. Because when you start construction, you want to be able to continue to move uh, along with, with, with the process. Right. An important part of what he said there, I think, Darren O'Rourke, is that uh, he's talking about 70%, as you said, but from a voluntary and non-voluntary process. Um, So uh, perhaps people will continue to object, uh, but once they have uh, the legal green light to proceed, uh, once they're in that position with 70% of the route, uh, they will proceed. 
that's that's the, the the approach they will take and i suppose the question there and in, in truth michael here all eyes um from from airgrid from government uh from you know political opposition um from the department are on the landowners in this case and the question is what's the level of acceptance and what's the level of opposition and what does that opposition look like and how how much frustration will there be between now and uh, um the CRU becoming involved in relation to this and uh, as i said the last time i was on if the level of opposition you know if 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 a tiny percentage of landowners sign up here and agree you're into a process of of uh, the CRU and ESB networks um locking horns with communities or possibly back into a public inquiry you're rolling on and and the question why? really becomes why why, why, why why would you be into a, a public uh, inquiry well well there's the, the the potential is there for CRU to insist because this is this is uh, um not an insignificant step from from airgrid to come yeah. and say we ca- we cannot secure voluntary here so um, but it's it, past it, every hurdle this project has it not up yeah, to this point yeah, but, well, i mean the, what, but, what would be the basis for a public inquiry all of the, the objections uh, that you're talking about from the landowners should have been dealt with uh, through the planning process well, well, I would think if if you're the energy regulator and Airgrid have come with a very substantial offer that is probably beyond what they have uh, provided elsewhere, certainly beyond what would be provided normally statu- stat- under statutory process, the equivalent of, of water infrastructure or wherever it might be, which is essentially what they're saying would be on the table if you don't go for, for the offer they have here. I think that raises a very significant issue in terms of uh, it flags up to the energy regulator that there is something unique about this project that the level of public uh, acceptance is not there in any shape or form and i think it would you know it would be um in, in my opinion they would need uh, given the the special order circumstances of this they would need to hold a, a further public inquiry now they may may make a, a, a different decision in relation to that but one thing is for sure if there isn't a significant voluntary sign up this project is not going to be delivered any time soon because it's going it's going to be frustrated in it, in different shapes or forms and I I can see that from you know the uh, the packed room in Kells and uh, uh, before Christmas I know with the energy and the, the the campaigns along along the route so 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 as I said all eyes are on landowners in relation to this but for anybody this government mm-hmm. future government for Airgrid for the department if that's the level of opposition. Um, there needs to be consideration of alternative methods of delivering this if the project is needed. And I think that's for, for I, I, I firmly believe those considerations should have been made a long time ago. I, I think uh, uh, I'm not the only one to say that. I think y- you could read that into the most recent review of the North-South Interconnector project by the, the, the Italian consultants. I know the department take a very different um, uh, uh, opinion in relation to that review, but my uh, firm assessment is that this process has been deeply flawed, and if there is continued opposition of a sufficient scale, of a sufficient scale, um, that this project won't be delivered overhead, and that airgrid uh, government, whoever's in government, need to go back to the drawing board in relation to it. Okay, I think airgrid would argue that very differently, and they will say it doesn't matter if there's opposition or, for that matter, what the scale of opposition is. Let's hear what Airgrid told you will happen next if people 
don't sign up. The next step of the process after the voluntary process is a compulsory process and we've outlined that to all of the landowners because it is important we move along the project and we, we develop that. We also had a lot of community engagement when we had meetings earlier last year in, in, in Meath and then separate meetings in November in Monaghan and Cavan where it was an opportunity for us to meet people and answer and try and address a lot of the questions that were out there. Um, can I ask, just because I'm, I'm conscious of, of time, the specific questions in relation to those planning conditions? So the planning, so planning conditions, so ESB networks are responsible for discharging the planning condition and wrote to each of the three county councils um, towards the end of quarter three last year and have been waiting with the county councils to engage. ESB have prepared the construction of environmental management plans, the trans uh, traffic management plan and the required conditions. But the first step on that for us to consider moving the project forward the discharge those with the county councils and we understand that the county councils want to meet themselves to agree the process because there's no point in taking a different process for each of the county and ESB are waiting for engagement from the councils to progress that. All right. Uh, is that a, a problem do you think Darren O'Rourke? You had many questions uh, about planning conditions. Yeah, and, and I think that's a, it's a further point I could have made, made earlier, Michael, in terms of my sense that this project, if, if there's significant public opposition, is not going to be delivered any time soon. Um, I mentioned in terms of the public resistance, the potential of a, a CRU-instructed public inquiry, but also this piece in terms of, of the um, ESB network securing 70% uh, agreement, voluntary or non-voluntary, and then moving into... Uh, um, discharging those planning conditions. They've, they've commenced some of that process, but they're, they're nowhere near, um, and those are conditions that, that have been set down by, by Onboard Planola, they're nowhere near discharging those. I, I, I'm quite sure, I know these are issues, um, whatever about the position of, of uh, the government parties, uh, local county councillors uh, in each of the counties have been uh, very exercised in, in their opposition to this project going overhead, and I think that's that's set to continue. Are they obstructing um, and, Well, time will tell in relation to, and I think in mm. fairness to to the to the campaign groups, um, they're they're not yet advocating uh, that in a, in a physical manner. You no, know, can, can, can the councillors uh, across uh, the three counties uh, obstruct uh, the development uh, because this requires? a construction plan and uh, an environmental plan and a traffic management plan. Yeah, they, they don't have a, a statutory role in terms of the, the, the planning process, but in the in the political realm, this, they certainly do uh, influence in their own parties, but also in terms of their engagement with, with the council um, itself. Ultimately, it will be a role for, for council officials um, and, and planners mm. within the, the individual councils. But there's, there's very significant um, planning obligations on airgrid and ESB networks in relation to into this project. And every one of those, if there isn't community agreement like this in mm. fairness to the campaign groups um, they have been absolutely diligent and vociferous in their efforts uh, to, to hold uh, airgrid and, and uh, by extension government to account in relation to this project and that's going to continue mm. and really uh, you know as as my party has been saying for a decade or more if if we want to deliver this project the best way to do it is uh, by engaging with communities 
um, by listening to their concerns mm. and by ultimately by delivering this project underground. And my position okay. and my party's position hasn't changed. In okay, and Airgrid's position hasn't changed. They're going overground. Uh, you were making the point that all these plans have to be in place before construction starts. Uh, and indeed, when construction starts, uh, I don't think anybody will be in any doubt that it has begun because we're talking about uh, a lot of heavy machinery coming into local areas and there needs to be a plan, you said, for the storage of construction materials. Uh, what about the swans? They're supposed to uh, engage with the National Parks and Wildlife Service, uh, the MPWS, over the Hooper swan. What's the concern there? Exactly, and this is something that was that was risen. Look, this is this is standard. I think it's it's something that has come up during the the course course of of planning considerations. Um, we, we the the appropriate uh, assessments, the environmental assessments, the the assess all of the assessments that uh, of the the scale of this project and its impact. And bear in mind, four hundred pylons here across five counties. Um, all. You know, in, in terms of delivering this project, and I'm and going back to that point, um, all that the community needs to do is frustrate one, two, or three of those pylons, and this project is scuppered. Um, so, so really, you know, 70% agreement, and ESB networks are, are happy to proceed. In my opinion, with 70% agreement, um, this this project is is far from okay. from uh, over the line. All uh, right. In my opinion. Okay, I have to leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the program this morning, Sinn Fein TD for me. These to Darren O'Rourke. Michael Reed on LMFM. Earlier in the programme we asked, why don't you get a GP visit card if you're entitled to one? Well, one listener is telling me exactly why. This is a 67-year-old pensioner who says, I am told by the HSE I'm eligible for a GP visit card. Applying, though, is a nightmare. My partner doesn't wish to be included on the application as she's still working. The HSE asked for home insurance details specifically for fire cover. I supplied this, but because my partner's name was also on the policy, it was rejected. I, I then supplied the insurance cover without my partner's name and the policy once again rejected because the amount was more than 500 a year. They asked me to provide evidence of three consecutive months payments of the insurance. Bank statements were rejected because the premium is paid from a joint account. The hassle I have to go through, Michael, to get the bank then to change the account to my name only. Is it worth it? Then I have to wait to get three consecutive months payments uh, so that I I can produce that for them. Uh, why being? Uh, why do we have to jump through hoops? Uh, it's obstacle after obstacle. My application has been ongoing since last summer and has not been resolved today. Uh, somebody else uh, in touch with us about paying for bloods. Tom, thank you indeed. A few other people were in touch with us about uh, having to pay for bloods when they have a, a medical card, uh, when they get their doctor to do it. And Tom quite rightly says, uh, well, they're just looking for something to moan about. <laughs> he says, anyone can get their bloods done for free in the HSE clinic. Doctors and staff are under enough pressure without this moaning. Thanks, uh, Tom, for that. Uh, quite correct in saying that the HSE clinics uh, will do your bloods for nothing and they provide a very, very good service. I think it has to be said. On the subject of getting to see your doctor, a caller in touch with us saying they tried to get an appointment this morning at 9 o'clock, only to be told all appointments were gone and I was told to go to the doctor on call this evening. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, Tom in touch with us too and he says, Michael, a united Ireland is the only solution now. Uh, well, thanks, uh, Tom. Maybe you could 
tell it to Jim Wells if you come across him in the coming days. But thank you indeed uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks everybody who was in touch with us today and that has to be the final word. Our time has run out on us once again. Uh, thanks as always to Maggie McGuire who researched the programme. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.